Well, uh, thank you for that kind introduction, and thanks to all of you for coming out tonight. This is, uh, I hope, um, for you, it's as much fun as it is for me. Um, so, you've all heard the tried and true advice that the best place to start is at the beginning. Well, tonight, I'm going to ignore that advice and start in the middle, or at least in the middle of the book with chapter 3. But in a way, we're still going to start at the beginning because I'm going to open by reading the first uh, page or so of that chapter. And we're also starting at the beginning in another way because the event that I'm about to describe took place right around the same time that the foundations for post-war private flying were being laid. So please fasten your seatbelts, hold on for what I hope is a fun and not too bumpy ride. One Sunday morning in November 1942, Mr. Brazil Freed decided to take his wife along on a routine flight from Moline, Illinois to the nearby town of Galesburg. When they were ready to return home later that day, there was no one around to help Mr. Freed start his plane, which lacked an electric starter. He left his wife seated in the passenger seat and stepped around front to hand prop the engine himself. He spun the propeller manually like this, and uh, uh, until the motor sputtered to life. And then he shouted for his wife to ease the throttle back to idle. But she misunderstood his instructions and gave it full power instead. Worse yet, when she tried to correct her mistake, she accidentally re released the parking brake. Engine roaring, the airplane surged forward, knocking Mr. Freed to the ground as it accelerated across the airfield. Shaken but not seriously injured, he watched in horror as the pilotless plane lifted off into the sky, carrying his wife with it. Fearing the worst, Mr. Freed called for a doctor and an ambulance to come to the field. The airport manager, also fearing the worst, called the fire department and then moved the airplanes that were parked near the runway out of harm's way, just in case Mrs. Freed found her way back and tried to land. No one on the ground had any reason to believe that this flight would end happily. Meanwhile, since the plane lacked a radio, Mrs. Freed, who had no previous aeronautical experience beyond riding as a passenger with her husband a few times, well, she had no choice but to teach herself to fly through trial and error. She discovered that when she turned what looked like a steering wheel slightly to the right or left, the plane turned right or left, just like the family car. She also found that when she pushed forward on the wheel, the plane entered a shallow dive. And when she pulled back, it began to climb. Though different from a car, this too seemed intuitive enough. The throttle, which had caused all the trouble in the first place, turned out to be fairly straightforward as well. When she pulled the knob all the way out, the engine grew quiet. When she pushed it all the way in, it roared to full power, just like it had during takeoff. Having figured this out, Mrs. Freed did the rest of her flying with the throttle positioned somewhere in between. After about 30 minutes of these experiments, she managed to return to the airport and on her second attempt, land on the runway, bending the front gear, the front landing gear, and breaking the propeller when she touched down too hard, but otherwise escaping with nothing but a bit lip and a couple of bruises. Now, Mrs. Freed deserves considerable credit for this feat of aeronautical 
prowess. It's impressive enough that she maintained the presence of mind to recover from the terror of finding herself alone in the air. In the air, excuse me. But in addition, whereas most student pilots have the benefit of eight to ten hours of hands-on training with a professional instructor before making their first solo flight, she managed to make it back alive and nearly unscathed after just 30 minutes of do-it-yourself flight instruction. But the plane deserves its fair share of credit, too. Thanks to its simplified control system, Mrs. Freed did not have to worry about rudder pedals as she learned how to steer through the sky. And more importantly, by design, the plane would not enter a potentially deadly stall or spin, no matter how much she slowed it down or pulled back on the controls. If ever there was a flying machine that promised to democratize the sky and allow anyone to take off into the not-so-wild blue yonder, this had to be it. Well, this story, a true story, from 1942, raises a few questions. Perhaps the most obvious one being, so here we are, 75 years later. Where is my flying car? <laughs> but before we try to answer that question, let's take a closer look at what, make, what makes the plane that Mrs. Free was flying so different from other airplanes of that era, and indeed different from most personal planes still used by private pilots to this very day. Yeah, I heard, I heard it out there. Um, first, let's review how you make an airplane turn. And I, I, how, I forgot to ask, how many pilots are out there? Yeah, okay, so we're not gonna go into angle of attack, okay? Just, so just bear with me here. To turn an automobile, uh, we use a single control, right? The steering wheel. You know, you turn the wheel to the right, the car turns to the right. You turn the car to the left, the car goes left. And sure, you may need to, to slow it down if you're going fast or you have to make a sharp turn, but we're keeping things really basic here. You want to turn, you use one control. Now, in an airplane, you either have a joystick, which is exactly that, a stick that moves both forward and back and left and right, or a control wheel that looks something like the steering wheel of a car. It turns left and right, but it also moves forward and back. Um, and to bank the wings, you push the stick or turn the wheel right or left. But that alone is not enough to turn the airplane. You also need to use a set of pedals on the floor, one for each foot, to operate the rudder, which is located on the tail of the airplane. And if this isn't complicated enough, you also need to learn how to pull back just the right amount on the control stick or on the, on the wheel as you enter the turn to keep the nose from dropping and the plane from going into a dive. And then as you roll out of the turn and level your wings, you have to ease the nose forward again. Um, so I think I said that wrong. As you, as, you, as you go into it, you don't want the plane to go into a dive. And then as you ease out of the turn, you don't want the airplane to start climbing. So there's all this coordination between hand and feet that you have to master just to turn an airplane. So to review, to turn a car, one control, right, the steering wheel, to turn an airplane, three controls that you have to coordinate. And that's uh, banking the wings, um, pushing forward or pulling back on the stick, and also using those rudder pedals. So that's one difference between flying an airplane and driving a car. Now let's look at another. So what does it mean to stall a car? Engine quits, right? I mean, when I was learning to drive a stick shift, I did it all the time. <laughs> um, now. Uh, we have pilots in the room, so real quick, 
what does it mean to stall an airplane? Yeah, so <laughs> lots of answers. There's lots of complicated ways to answer it, right? But basically, a simplified explanation is if you slow the plane down enough, the airspeed drops to the point that the wing stops flying. And when the wing stops flying, the airplane, I made this this morning, by the way. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, the airplane, uh, if you slow it down enough, the airplane suddenly, the nose drops pretty dramatically, um, plummeting towards the earth. And if your, your normal reaction would be to pull back on the controls, right? Because the nose suddenly dropped. But the problem is, if you stalled the airplane because you got it going too slow, when you pull back, that just exacerbates the problem, and the plane stays stalled. And if you're close to the ground, you hit the ground going pretty fast, and it's often a deadly crash. <laughs> now, stalls can, you, you, you learn how to do this, you practice this as a student pilot, but you do it at a safe altitude. The time that stalls are, are dangerous is if you're in the airport traffic pattern, a few hundred feet above the ground, right? And you're looking around for another airplane, or you're trying to figure out just where that runway went as you're making your turn, and you get it a little bit too slow, and suddenly the nose drops, and the next thing you know, you hit the ground. And so that's, that's what a stall is. And there's something even more terrifying uh, than a stall, and that's called a spin. Now, has everybody seen those old black and white World War I movies where the Red Baron is in shooting and then the airplane goes into a, you know, smoke comes out and it goes into a spin? Well, take away the Red Baron and take away the smoke, and that's what a spin looks like. And what happens with a spin is one wing stalls, stops flying, and the other wing doesn't. And so as a result, instead of just heading down to the ground like that, it actually heads down to the ground kind of like this. And again, like a stall, recovering from that situation is counterintuitive. You would think that you would turn the wheel in the opposite direction to stop the spin and pull back. Well, turning the wheel in the opposite direction doesn't do anything because the wings have basically stopped flying. And pulling back just makes the spin tighter. So what you have to do is turn the wheel back to the neutral position, push on the opposite rudder pedal, get the plane into a normal dive to pick up airspeed, and then you can pull out. So as you can imagine, this takes several hundred feet to get out of one of these. And if you're close to the ground, you've probably already hit the ground. So, so that's a stall and a spin. So um, two major differences between flying and driving. One is turning, takes a lot more coordination, a lot more controls. And the other is that you've got this problem of stalling and spinning. And as you can imagine, it also takes a certain degree of knowledge, coordination, and judgment to master the many other technical skills required to safely operate a complex piece of machinery like an airplane in an inherently unforgiving environment like the sky. Well, in the mid-1930s, an aeronautical engineer named Fred Wyke, who also happened to be a private pilot, set out to design an airplane that would make flying as simple and safe as driving a car. He did this using his own money and in his spare time building a prototype in his garage. His prototype worked, so he was hired by a company called Engineering and Research Corporation, or AIRCO, to build a production model. Now, up to this point, the AIRCO 
uh, excuse me, the company, Airco, was not an aircraft manufacturer. It had specialized in building the tools, the machine tools and the machinery that other companies used to manufacture metal airplane propellers and metal airplane parts. But Airco wanted to break into the private aviation business, and its president saw enormous potential in Fred Weick's supposedly foolproof design. And that explains the airplane in which Mrs. Freed literally taught herself to fly in 1942. It was a real airplane, and it was called the Air Coop, the Airco Air Coop. So, uh, and that name comes, the name Air Coop comes from the company's initials, Airco, combined with the word coupe, which is uh, a two-seat sporty automobile. So I'll tell you about just two of the many designed-in safety features that made the air coupe so different from any other airplane of the day. First, Fred Wyke got rid of those rudder pedals. And he did this by connecting the rudder on the tail to the steering wheel. Um, so that when you turn the wheel to bank the wings to start your turn, that very same motion automatically moves the rudder on the tail just the right amount to make the airplane turn. Voila, no more complicated dance between the hands and feet. Sure, you still need to pull back a little bit on the, on the wheel to keep the nose from dipping during the turn, but that was a whole lot easier than trying to coordinate three separate controls. And let's not forget that at that time, uh, most automobiles had manual transmissions, so people were already used to coordinating their hands and feet to a certain degree. Well, this allowed Airco to advertise that the air coupe actually made flying easier than driving, since now you didn't need to do anything with your feet as you, quote, drove through the air. But what about that pesky problem of airplanes stalling or spinning if the speed drops too much? Well, Fred Wyke took care of that also. He designed the wings and the controls so that the air coupe refused to stall or spin, period. It was actually certified as stall-proof and uh, spin-proof by the federal government. So, admittedly, thanks to these changes, pilots did lose some of the range of control over their plane compared to other aircraft that would stall and spin. This was the sacrifice that came with making the plane safer. But let's think about this. Now you could not die in a stall or spin-related accident, thanks to this design. And by the way, in the 1930s and 40s, stalls and spins accounted for 50% of the deaths in private planes. Half of all fatal accidents in private planes were caused by stalls or spins. So Fred Wyke had designed out half of the deaths in private flying. Now, if there are any Air, any Air Coupe fans in the audience? Okay, good. Um, you know that these are just two of several designed-in safety features that Wyke incorporated into this little plane, and they all worked. So back to our original question. Here we are 75 years later. Where is my air coupe-inspired flying car? Well, hold on to that thought. I know I keep pushing it down the line, but uh, we want to answer another question before we, we get to that. So why did Fred Wyke set out to design a personal plane that would be as safe and easy to operate as an automobile? And even more important, why did a company decide to invest in building and selling this airplane in the late 1930s when the country was still gripped in economic depression? 
And the answer to that lies in America's views about aviation at that time. Nowadays, we tend to look back with nostalgia at the 1920s and 30s as the golden age of aviation, an era of open cockpit biplanes, fearless fighter aces, uh, daring barnstormers, and determined pioneers who pushed the limits of themselves and their machines, sometimes to achieve lasting fame like Charles Lindbergh, while in other cases, like Amelia Earhart, to be remembered for their ultimate sacrifice. But at the same time, everyday folks who had never even ridden in an airplane, they didn't just see this as the golden age of, of, of aviation. Instead, they felt like they were poised on the edge of a brand new era. After World War I, which was supposedly the war to end wars, followed by a decade of devastating economic depression, it seemed like finally the future looked bright again. And part of that bright future would include an airplane in every garage. This may seem a bit far-fetched today, but put yourself in the shoes of everyday Americans in the mid-1930s. In just two decades, that's one generation, automobiles had gone from being a rich man's plaything to a form of practical personal transportation that everyday working-class folks could afford in just one generation. And so from that perspective, if Henry Ford's Model T could do that for cars, what might the miracle of American manufacturing do for personal planes? And that's exactly the kind of enthusiasm, and I mean genuine, deep-down belief that this was the future of flying that inspired the air coupe. So what happened? Well, for one thing, World War II happened. In 1939, there were fewer than 34,000 licensed civilian pilots in the United States. Uh, in 1951, just over a decade later, that number had skyrocketed to more than 580,000. To put this another way, in 1939, one out of 2,700 American adults knew how to fly. A decade later, that ratio was one out of 180 adults knew how to fly. And the vast majority of these new pilots were young white men who had served in the military during World War II. Now, not all of them had been military pilots. Combined, the Army and Navy trained a little over a quarter of a million pilots during the war. Then there was uh, nearly twice that number of young college-aged men who earned their private pilot's license at government expense immediately before or during the war in a program called the Civilian Pilot Training Program, or CPTP, which was created to provide a pool of pre-screened pilot candidates for military flight schools. So during the war, more than half a million military-aged men learned to fly either through the military's flight schools or the civilian pilot training program. And this helps to explain the dramatic rise in the number of licensed pilots between 1939 and 1951. There was also a third pathway into the post-war cockpit that we haven't mentioned yet, and that was the GI Bill. The GI Bill is best known for helping millions of returning veterans to attend college and buy their first homes. But for a brief period, from 1946 to 1949, instead of going to college or trade school, returning veterans could instead choose to use their educational benefits to earn a private pilot's license 
and several hundred thousand of them did just that. The Veterans Administration estimated that it spent $125 million on flight training on, for former GIs in 1946 alone, and in a study published a few years later, it reported with the government paying the bills, approximately 350,000 veterans had enrolled in flight school by the end of 1947. Several thousand new flight schools opened at airports around the country just to take advantage of this post-war boom in civil aviation, up from just 403 flight schools at the start of 1946. Now, at first glance, it seems like thousands of new flight schools and hundreds of thousands of new post-war pilots should be good news if you're in the business of building and selling air coops. And for a couple of years, it was. Airco churned out an astounding 4,300 aircraft in 1946 alone. That's not much in terms of automobile production, but for private planes, that's huge. But then orders plummeted. Now, there were a couple of reasons for this. For one thing, the market for private aviation was saturated, but there was another problem, too. Most of these new pilots of the post-war era, or pilots in training at flight schools, um, in the case of those who learned to fly through, through the GI Bill, most of them were young men just returned from the war who had come of age in the highly masculinized environment of the military. And these same young men had been boys during the so-called golden age of aviation in the decade just before the war when they had worshipped pilot heroes, both real and fictional, who were, or at least seemed to be, the perfect embodiment of true blue, red-blooded, all-American masculinity. Think also about the environment in which military pilots were trained during the war. There was almost an universal acceptance of the idea that instructors should be harsh on their students because if you can't stand a little tough talk and intimidation in the cockpit during stateside training, what's going to happen when the bullets start flying overseas? All of these factors contributed to reinforcing pre-war notions that flying was a masculine endeavor. In this environment, the air coupe, which offered to make flying so safe and simple that anyone, even Mrs. Freed, could do it, well, in this environment, the air coupe becomes a technological path not taken. Not because the design was inherently flawed, but because pilots ultimately rejected it as a plane for sissies. Now, at first glance, this scenario I've just described might seem a bit far-fetched, but let's take a closer look at some of the evidence. The air coupe was greeted with widespread enthusiasm by pilots and non-pilots alike on the eve of World War II. For instance, in December of 1940, Richard Thrulson, an editor for the Saturday Evening Post, previewed Fred Weick's revolutionary plane and then wrote an article optimistically promising, get ready today, groundlings, for tomorrow we fly. And Thurlson went on to conclude that thanks to the air coupe, the eagle is changing into the sparrow, and uncounted thousands of us will be flying soon. World War II interrupted production of the air coupe, and the military chose more conventional designs in which to train its pilots, which makes sense. After all, fighter planes, by definition, must be prone to stalls and spins in order to perform the basic aerobatics that are required in aerial combat. But even though the military didn't choose to use the air coupe as a basic trainer, 
Airco prospered during the war. Like many other companies, it switched over to wartime production, in this case, producing powered gun turrets that were used in larger bombers. After the war, Airco resumed production of the air coupe, and at first, the future still seemed bright, but there was already a schism, a divide developing within the aviation community over Fred Weick's design, one that even ardent fans of the air coupe acknowledged in the articles that they wrote in the mid-40s describing the air coupe's many revolutionary features. <coughs> the biggest complaint, when you get right down to it, is that experienced pilots were worried that the air coupe would allow neophytes, who had no business in the cockpit, to take off into the wild blue yonder only to kill themselves and their passengers due to poor training, poor judgment, or both. According to this argument, a safer airplane could actually lead to more, not fewer, accidents. William Piper, founder and president of Piper Aircraft Company, famously liked to say, you can build a, flu a foolproof aircraft, but not a damn foolproof aircraft. In all, Airco built about 5,000 planes before the post-war personal plane market went bust in the late 1940s. Uh, the big three personal plane manufacturers, Cessna, Piper, and Beach, all managed to weather the storm. But Airco gave up, sold its production rights, and shifted its focus to other products. But the Aircoupe story doesn't end there. Between the late 1940s and the early 1970s, there were several attempts to revive the design. But despite plenty of marketing hype, and in several cases, between a few dozen to a few hundred airplanes built by various companies, I've only got three listed up here, uh, there are at least five, uh, it turns out that the air coupe never really took off again. Pardon the pun. It turns out there just wasn't a sustainable niche in the personal plane market for a design that took so much of the skill out of flying. In fact, when Mooney, an established company, bought the design rights in the late 1960s, the company replaced the Air Coupe's traditional double tail with a single vertical fin, deliberately making it possible for the airplane to stall and spin. In other words, Mooney engineers redesigned the plane to get rid of one of Fred Weick's most revolutionary designed-in safety features. And Mooney wasn't alone. For instance, in the late 1970s, Piper introduced a new two-seat training aircraft, the Tomahawk, that was deliberately designed to be less docile than its post-war predecessors, on the assumption that learning in a more challenging airplane would make it easier for new pilots to transition into larger, more complex aircraft after they earned their license. Unfortunately, Piper was perhaps a little too successful and their new design quickly earned the unfortunate nicknamed Traumahawk <laughs> among students. But back to the air coupe. Even though the design was essentially dead, pilots kept on talking about it. In 1958, Ray Withman, aviation editor for Science and Mechanics magazine, flight tested one of several attempts to revive Wyke's design. In this case, the Forney Air Coupe, which is pronounced the same way, but it's spelled A-I-R with a coupe on the end. He began his article by explaining the underlying attraction of private flying. <coughs> Precision flying is like making love. 
From the pilot, it requires the same highly tuned sensitivity to the peculiarities of his plane and the forces acting on it. And it yields something more than the simple business of getting from one place to another that is almost impossible to describe to the non-flyer. <laughs> this, he noted, is why flying is habit-forming to a degree that almost becomes a vice for many of us non-professionals when it strains our, our budgets. Well, according to Withman, because the air coop did not require this level of intimacy with the aircraft, flying was inherently less satisfying for real pilots. In the air coop, you have to sacrifice some of these sensations. In making a turn, you don't have to do any of the feather touch coordinating between stick or wheel and rudder pedals that you, do, that you are accustomed to. The air coop does the coordinating for you mechanically, and there is nothing whatever to do with your feet, no pedals. <laughs> After noting that the plane's interconnected controls did a reasonably good job, he observed, if you are willing to forego the precise coordination that's such a joy to sense in a skilled pilot, this little plane will get you where you want to go efficiently, neatly, and safely. In other words, not a plane for real pilots. Now, another review of the Forney Air Coupe, written for Flying Magazine, which has a pretty wide circulation, um, and it was written at about the same time as Withman's article, only in this case it was by an experienced flight instructor named Alex, Alice Fuchs. Um, this uh, review highlighted the connections between gender identity and a uh, pilot's desire to feel uh, control over the aircraft. Fuchs personally believed that the air coupe was a perfectly acceptable design, but she noted that many of her fellow flyers disagreed. Pilots are a strange, proud breed, and there is a feeling that a man should be master of his fate, at least to the point of pushing his own rudder pedals. Without admitting it to themselves, these pilots feel there is something rather unsporting about making pilotage too easy, that a real he-man airplane should be more difficult to handle. The debate about whether or not the air coupe was a real plane and whether those who flew it deserved to be called real pilots continued long after the last version of the airplane went out of production. A used plane review published in 1980 observed that bringing up the air coupe idea to any group of pilots is a call for an animated and opinionated debate. After explaining that thanks to its simplified controls, there simply wasn't much for a pilot to do, the author noted that critics still complained that the air coupe encouraged sloppy flying habits and made for a, quote, incomplete pilot experience. The pilot of yet a, uh, the author, excuse me, of yet another review, this one published a decade later in 1990, admitted right up front that Wyke's design was frequently dismissed as, quote, not a real airplane. <coughs> now, what's behind all this? Well, if you look at some of the popularly accepted benchmarks of masculinity in post-war America, which include technical competence, mental and physical toughness, and calm courage in the face of risk or physical danger, because the air coop required less skill and reduced the potential risk of flying, it threatens to erode the masculine aura surrounding flying. Now, if the air coop was the only example from post-war private flying that suggests some sort of connection between masculine culture and aviation, this would be a pretty flimsy foundation on which to base an entire book. 
But what I just shared are the highlights from a single case study in a book full of case studies. What I did was uh, I looked at post-war private flying from numerous perspectives. For instance, we've already discussed how World War II profoundly shaped the demographics of that first huge wave of post-war private pilots. What I did not mention was just how long their influence lasted. In the late 1950s, more than a decade after World War II ended, nearly two-thirds of all active civilian pilots were members of this first wave of post-war pilots. And they continued to be a sizable presence at the airport for years to come, so that even as late as 1987, and that's more than four decades after World War II ended, nearly, uh, nearly 10% of all active pilots belonged to this generation, by then in their 60s or older. These guys, and as I said earlier, most of them were guys, had learned to fly in the pressure cooker environment of wartime training. And they passed along their experience and expectations of what it meant to be a pilot to subsequent generations of private flyers, many of whom never served in uniform, much less flew for the military. One way this happened was through flight instruction, which we normally tend to think of strictly in terms of technical training, but which it turns out also includes a hefty dose of acculturation in other words, teaching you how to act like a pilot. Traditionally, the ideal model for a flight instructor bore no resemblance to the soft-spoken, patient, and encouraging woman who many of us imagined standing in front of an elementary school classroom during the 1950s or 60s. Instead, he's the tough-talking, no-nonsense high school football coach or military drill sergeant whose job was to make boys into men and weed out the weaklings and sissies who didn't fit in. This image appeared in a World War II manual for Army Air Corps flight instructors, along with the warning to these instructors, don't be impatient and don't get angry. Well, thanks to countless sources, including accounts by both uh, students and flight instructors, post-war handbooks for flight instructors, and even academic studies on the psychology of best practices in flight instruction, we know that varying degrees of this kind of treatment remained the norm in the instructor-student relationship well into the 1980s. Another way that pilots passed these norms along was through their everyday social interactions at the airports. Many pilots consider themselves members of an aviation community, a community that has common interests, values, and skills that at once creates an instant bond between flyers and at the same time sets them apart and above if you'll pardon another aviation pun, the rest of the world outside the airport fence. I devote two full chapters to exploring how this community of pilots operates and consciously and unconsciously perpetuates longstanding norms about who does and who doesn't belong in the cockpit. And there's one chapter, one of these chapters, it's one of my favorites, is on hangar flying and $100 hamburgers two terms that are well known among pilots that describe social rather than practical or technical aviation activities. This chapter also examines why so many of the thousands of small airports across the United States that traditionally served private pilots resembled throughout the post-war era, to use a modern day tour, uh, term, man caves and what kind of message this sent to pilots, non-pilots, and aspiring pilots. Finally, 
In addition to the air coop, I use several other aircraft or types of aircraft as case studies to show that members of the aviation community tended to celebrate individual skill as a means to overcome risk, and at the same time, reject certain designed-in safety features that threatened to take away too much of the skill required in flying. These case studies include the Cessna 337 Skymaster, which in many ways uh, is kind of a, a latter-day air coupe, in that while this unique design was technically safer than its counterparts, it was eventually laughed off the market by members of the aviation community who collectively decided that the Mixmaster, a clever takeoff on the plane's real name that suggests it belongs in the kitchen making cake batter at the hands of a woman, instead of boring holes in the sky with a, a manly man at the controls, uh, the, the Mixmaster, I mean Skymaster, wasn't a real airplane for real pilots. And then there's a subcategory of pilots who deliberately choose to fly a type of aircraft known affectionately as tail draggers. Uh, these planes, uh, the tail draggers, with two main wheels up front and the little wheel under the tail, are trickier to land safely than the airplanes equipped with tricycle landing gear. Uh, that's uh, two main wheels and a wheel under the nose that quickly became the industry standard following World War II. Since the 1970s, learning to fly a tail dragger has become something of a badge of honor among pilots. There's even a name for it, Taming the Tail Dragger. And it's well documented that many who take the time, trouble, and additional risk to tame the tail dragger enjoy a certain degree of respect and even bragging rights amongst their peers in the aviation community. Finally, I examine the case of the Beechcraft Bonanza, the sleek, fast, and expensive private plane with its distinctive V-shaped tail that's featured on the cover of the book. For decades, the Bonanza uh, was dogged by controversy. It had a bad habit of breaking up mid-flight and falling to the ground in pieces. And some pilots became convinced that the plane was inherently unsafe. But other pilots, especially those who chose to keep flying the Bonanza, argued that while the plane was indeed demanding, it was inept pilots, not an inherently unsafe design that was to blame for those crashes. So what emerged was a kind of right stuff argument, even before the author Tom Wolfe coined that term for his 1979 book. In the case of the Bonanza, proponents claimed that you needed to have the right stuff to fly it safely. And if it killed you, well, that was proof that you didn't have the right stuff after all. And it's hard to think of a more masculine, macho argument than that. So when you add up all of these examples, it starts looking like aviation in general, and in this case, private aviation, has a long-standing tradition of, of being by, for, and about men. Now, this is not to say that women didn't fly. Do we have any women pilots in the audience? Not tonight, but, um, but women have been flying from the start, and they're flying today. In 1960, though, less than 3% of all licensed pilots in the United States were women, a fact that when you think about it, it doesn't seem all that surprising, given the social norms of the era and also the jobs in aviation that were available, or the lack of jobs, actually, available 
uh, to women at that time. Now, by 1978, a generation later, this percentage had doubled to 6%. Again, not surprising, given all the changes that took place in the 1960s and early 70s. Well, with the women's liberation movement, the baby boom generation coming of age, challenging many of the old norms. And there were some other changes that happened during those two decades that helped explain this increase in women pilots. In 1973, airlines facing potential lawsuits for discriminating against women finally opened the cockpit door to female pilots. And the military also finally opened its cockpits to women as well. Now, it's a common misperception that during World War II, the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP, became the first women pilots in the U.S. military. While they wore military-style uniforms, completed the same rigorous flight training as male military pilots, and flew over 60 million miles as they ferried and flight-tested virtually every type of military aircraft in the U.S. inventory all across the United States, Members of the WASP were, in fact, civilian employees of the U.S. government. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because when the program was disbanded in 1944, these women were out of a job, and they were kicked out of the cockpit. And so it wasn't until 1974 that the first female military aviators graduated from the Army's and Navy's flight schools, and it took another two years before the Air Force announced its first two classes of women pilots in 1976. So between 1960 and 1978, the percentage of women pilots essentially doubles from 3% to 6% of the total. But then something weird happened. And guess what it is? It stopped rising. And so for the ne next uh, four decades, it remains stuck at 6%, varying by only plus or minus a half percent. The FAA's latest figures show a slight rise. As of December 31st, 2016, women now make up 6.71% of the total population of pilots. But let's face it, that increase is so tiny that we can't yet call it a trend. So this means that if you walk into any airport today, any small airport across the United States where private flying takes place, um, 14 out of 15 pilots you meet will probably be men. And that experience alone sends a strong message to anyone, male or female, who's contemplating learning to fly, which is what set me on the path to explore the complicated relationship between masculine culture and private aviation in the first place. So just a few final words before we open the floor to questions. This book is a case study about the deeply connected relationship between private aviation and masculinity, but it's also a case study about much broader issues in the society in which we live. And uh, I see this as just one of countless examples where there's more to meet the eye once you step back far enough, or maybe instead start looking more closely, but through a different lens in order to see what's hidden in plain sight. So uh, in closing, I'd like to thank you again for coming out. I look forward to answering your questions for the next several minutes, and then maybe um, if anybody is interested, signing a few books. <laughs>